so many things about uh, light in the songs we've seen in the video. I was thinking the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And think of Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. Any man is, walks in this light, he'll never have any darkness. Think of uh, the one who says that in him was life and his life was the light of the world. Light came into the world and light, the darkness did not comprehend it, didn't understand it, couldn't overcome it. It shines and it still shines today. And so our study today is on Revelation and we're, you already looked at some of these last week. We did and uh, <clears throat> we talked about Jesus walking in the midst of some candle sticks, some lampstands. Remember that? And these stars that he held in his right hand and and uh, so we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be looking at <clears throat> the first church, uh, the first of these lampstands. So let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven candles, the lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested them who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you do have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you uh, have sent us a letter <clears throat> and uh, you've sent us your very son, the word of God. But you have also have some specific things to say to your church, your bride. And you start off with one that uh, commends, but also has some strong language regarding this love affair that you have desired with mankind from the very beginning. And so as we represent you, as we look forward to the day when we will be in your presence in the arms of our lover, the one who loved us with an everlasting love, the one who expressed it, who manifested his love on a cross, giving his life for us, this bride, this first love, uh, you first loved us, we didn't first love you. 
but how we thank you for that. And so as we look at your word today, would you take your spirit and speak to us? You said he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So may that be true today. Speak to us, touch our hearts, help us to fall in love with you in a new way this morning, for Jesus' sake, amen. Okay, so uh, just a little bit of uh, maybe ground rules or uh, orientation as we look at these seven letters. You can see there on the board, the seven letters, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. You'll notice, too, that it always has some uh, some unique... um, uh, some similarities all through these uh, these letters. So we have the picture of someone's uh, idea of what it must have been like to have seen this one who was, you talked about him last week, white and the sword coming out of his mouth and the eyes and the, the, the clothes that were like burnished bronze and the chest, the sash across his chest and, and all these things and how uh, I suppose we would fall at our, his feet just as John did. So this is some artist's idea of Jesus walking between the lampstands, checking out the fire. Are we, are we, are we lit up or are we fizzling? Oh, this church had a problem with the lampstand going out. Another church had the same, same type of an expression, only it was lukewarm and cold. And uh, so he's real concerned about us being light. Uh, Jesus says, let your light so shine among men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. <clears throat> so some of the similar for- <clears throat> similarities in these seven letters, they all begin this way, to the angel of the church in, and then you just fill in the blank. Um, so who's the angel? Um, I think of, in, we just got through going through Hebrews, and in Hebrews it says, are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And so my take on that is that these angels had a specific jurisdiction uh, to, to guard, to encourage, to, to help uh, these people in this church uh, as ministers um, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Um, Angels are all over through this book, aren't they? And uh, we will see more of them. So these these angels were given a specific task of working with these churches and of taking the message that that Jesus wanted them to have to that that particular church. These are the words of, and so each one of these letters goes back to what what we looked at last week, and takes out a specific character of Jesus and says, the one who walked, you know, the one who had the golden sash, the one whose eyes, the one whose hair, the... and so Jesus' identity and his authority are brought up in each one of, to each of these um, churches. And then one of the things, another similarity in the beginning, introduction, is I know. It always says, I know, I know. And it's an accurate assessment of each church. Uh, so he does know, doesn't he? 
And then there's a similarity in the conclusions um, for each of the letters. There is a conclusion regarding receptivity. He who has an ear, let him hear. Does that sound familiar? Now, Jesus did that all the time in his, uh, when he was on the earth. He says, hey, if you got after he taught them, he would say, he who has an ear, let him hear. Like, duh, what do you do with the ear? Just put earrings on him or what? You know, he who has an ear, let him hear. It's, it's intended. I made that ear for you to hear something and to do something with it and to rejoice as well as to obey. And so he who has an ear, let him hear. Um, not one ear and out the other, but it's to retain it. Uh, receptivity, and then recommendation, what the Spirit says to the churches, as always said. Notice it says to the churches. Everyone starts off with to the church, and it ends with to the churches. So I don't think we're an exception. I think every church has probably one of these fallacies or one of these strengths. And so he says, this is to the churches. And then there's a response. How do you respond? The intention is that you would overcome, okay? Um, are you an overcomer? Have you been overcome by sin or are you an overcomer? Um, Paul says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so he who overcomes, these are not gonna be simple things necessarily. They're gonna be hard things. To overcome is not just a walk in the park. There is gonna be some intentionality there. So how do you respond? And then there's a reward. I will give something. So that's kind of the uh, setting of all of these churches. So let's look at the first one, to the church in Ephesus. I like the, just to be able to see where Paul is, I mean, Peter, excuse me, John is writing from, Patmos. You can see that, I think, on the screen there, Patmos. And then you see the, each of the churches in the order that they are given. So Ephesus is the first one, the closest one. Then you have Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So it's to the church in Ephesus. Does that, what comes to your mind when you think of Ephesus? Um, my, what came to my mind was the riot that they had there. And there's, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? You know, this thing came down from heaven. And, and who would deny that? Well, that's not what they shout now. They say, Allah Akbar, great is Muhammad, great is Allah. Similar things still going on there. What happened in this place? Well, what happened was Acts 20, 17. Paul says, I know that after I leave, strange, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And so we see that there's a warfare going on, isn't there, in this world? And the church is, what did, what did Jesus say? That uh, the gates of hell would not prevail against his church? Sometimes it seems like it does, doesn't it? We go through some hard stuff. One of the things I think of in terms of the love that's mentioned in this particular passage we're going through is what he also told to the Ephesians. He says, I want you to be rooted and grounded and established in love that you might have the power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And so he's going to talk about this love issue, this love relationship in the section we're looking at today. 
Well, this, <clears throat> it says here, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I think when I think of him holding something, uh, it's just an interesting thought. He says he holds where? He holds them in his right hand. Um, the right hand always implicated power, authority. It also indicated a place of honor, didn't it? Uh, in Psalm 16, 8, and 11, it says, I have set the Lord always before him. Because he's at my right hand, I will never be moved. And then he ends it with, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So there's this sense of, of great privilege to have him holding us in his right hand. We even talk about it. we give you the right hand of fellowship or something like that. You know, there's a sense of privilege. Well, then there's also a sense of power, a position of power. Um, in Psalms 98.1, it talks about his right hand and his holy arm will do great things for him and work salvation. Um, his right hand. It's, it's, a, it's power. It's skill. And we even see that in Psalm 137.4, which says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, then let my right hand... Forget its cunning, its skill, its ability. Well, that's where he's holding us. He's holding his right hand. In John 10, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Where are you? You're in his hand. This is the same one who just a little bit earlier had said, you know, I've conquered the grave. I was, I am. I mean, I, I, how's it go? It says, I, I was, I am, and I will be, something like that. And it says, the Alpha and Omega, and he says, and I hold, I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's a pretty full, powerful grip right there, don't you think? A pretty mighty arm, a pretty privileged position that you and I have. He is holding us. And then he talks about his presence. Him who holds. Him who walks among. I love that thought of him walking among us. In Leviticus, it says, I, walk, I will walk among you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Do you want God to be among us? Do you know he's here where two or three are gathered? There I am in their midst. I love 1 Corinthians 14, 25, when it talks about unbelievers coming into a fellowship and hearing us speak the word of God and the truth. And it says, he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you, among you. Luke 22, 27 says, but I am among you as one who serves. What a wonderful thing. God is in here tenderly serving us. He refers this among issue to uh, elders as well, to the elders among you. I appeal as a fellow elder. So his power, he who holds and he who walks among us, that's, that's influential, that's, 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 in, um, that's purposeful because he's going to bring up something that's a little bit more difficult. So now he says something else. He not only has the ability to hold this position of power, this walking among, but because he does all that, he also knows what we're like and what we need. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, 
that you've tested them who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. So two times he uses the word, I know. I know. I know your deeds, good deeds, accomplishments, great things. Your hard work, it cost you something. There was toil, there was effort. Your perseverance, the tenacity, the guts, the will to do these things. I know other things. I know your intolerance. Psalm 139 says, do not I hate those who hate you? We're going to talk about tolerance a little bit later. Your accurate assessment. 1 John 4.1 says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. Your accurate assessment. You have tested those who claim to be apostles and found them to be false. I know you're suffering for my name. My name. Jesus said that. Don't be surprised. Blessed are you when men say all kinds of false things because of my name. You bear my name. In Acts, it says that they left the Sanhedrin, the apostles did, rejoicing because they had counted, were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for that name. I know. I know. You ever been hurting real bad when you were a kid and you came to your mom your dad, and you poured out, God, you don't understand. I mean, huh? You don't, nobody understands me. And all you hear is your mom saying, I know, I know. <laughs> she doesn't try to, she just says, I know. I love that thought as we think of this passage. I know. I know. It says in uh, Job, after he was going through his hard time, he says, but I know the way that I take. He knows the way I take. And when I am through, I'll come forth as gold. He knows. He knows. Well, let's get into the talk, topic about what he's against. Yet I have this against you. What does it mean to have left your first love? This is a delicate subject to address in any relationship, especially in marriage. The definition of love may be skewed. There's more about getting than about giving. Love entropy seems to have its say in most marriages. And I remember dating my wife, Cree, that uh, she and I read several books on marriage before we were married. We were engaged. And I remember one day, Cree's uh, dad um, kind of belittling us for that. What are you doing that for? It all comes so natural, you know? He was on a second marriage. He went to a third. And I thought, oh, I just heard you guys screaming together. <laughs> the law of entropy. I have this against you. Touchy as the question may be, Jesus doesn't skirt the issue in our relationship with him. This lover cares about his bride and about their relationship. And so he says, I have this against you. So what is this first love thing?
What is this thing called first love? Why is it so critical that everything else would be lost because of its absence, that the lampstand would be removed for the lack of it? I mean, they're doing great, aren't they? Impressive work. Great theology. And yet he says, I'll remove your candlestick if you don't get this one thing right. Whatever it is, it must be worth our effort to identify and to recapture and recultivate. I can think of no other place in the Bible where this term is used besides here. However, the implication of something first is repeated in verse 5 where it says, repent and do the things you did at first. There's something unique and special about first things. There was a feast of first fruits. There was a special dedication, a place for the firstborn. And Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. There are many things that we had first experiences of in our youth, aren't there? Um, there was your first job, your first car, your first date, on and on. Some of those experiences in your youth and my youth were great. Others were disastrous. In fact, David even asked the Lord to remember not the sins of my youth. But the Lord is pretty positive and affirmative on many of those first things in our youth as well. He says in Proverbs 5.18, Rejoice with the wife of your youth. And in uh, Malachi, he was pretty ticked over the guy who had broken faith with the wife of his youth. But I love Jeremiah 2.1, where God seems to jump into our shoes when he says, I remember the devotion of your youth. I was a bride, you loved me. And you followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Do these words, do these verses not have something to do with this thought of first love? Does your heart respond with a formation and interest in this kind of devotion and love that would go anywhere to follow this bridegroom? What is it about that first love that we both love and yet are reluctant to maintain or return to? We were amazed and engaged by the acceptance, attention, and affection of the one who loved us in the beginning. We responded to that affirmation of worth and value just as the lover in Song of Solomon so tenderly declared, oh, how beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. And again, my dove, my perfect one, is unique. Yet we were aware of our own imperfection and shortcoming, and we thought as she did, don't stare at me because I am dark. Because I'm darkened by the sun. I've been working and sweating in the vineyards. In my own vineyard, I have neglected. And maybe you're like Moses who put a veil over his face to keep people from seeing the fading glory. We too have feared that our, lo our lover might discover those dark aspects of our life and their love for us would fade as well. But that first love somehow overcomes that fear and instead, of res instead responds with trust and eagerness as well as a sense of privilege and unworthiness which only heighten the affection. In fact, any lady who walks down the aisle or any man who stands up here in front of the church waiting for her to come down that aisle and doesn't feel both privilege and unworthiness is probably not ready for marriage. And there's something right about the phrase that we hear sometimes couples use, my better half. 
There was nothing you wouldn't do for this one you loved. Nothing too hard, nothing too weird, nothing too insignificant. We all did some things that were way outside our ability and familiarity and comfort. What was it that moved us to these displays of love? Did we do them out of a sense of duty or a sense of gratitude and love and affection? That love cannot be substituted or bought, nor should we ever take the counterfeit in place of the real thing. And Jesus doesn't do it. Again, in Song of Solomon, he says this. Many waters cannot wash it away. Rivers can't do it. In fact, if one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. In other words, the real thing is obvious and can't be mistaken. It can't be hidden, ignored, or done away with. And if anyone would try to replace it or exchange it for any amount of bling or ching or whatever you want to call it, he would be laughed at and called a jerk. Now, it's against that backdrop that we hear Jesus say these words, yet I have this against you. You have left, you have forsaken your first love. I can't help but think that there's a bit of pain and deep hurt in these words. Why would we distance ourselves from this joyous relationship and exchange it for something lesser? Notice it doesn't say that he left his love, but we have. Again, we, have, we can almost hear the lover in Song of Solomon saying similar words to his bride. My dove in the rock, show me your face. Let me hear your voice. What's happened? Catch for us the little foxes that ruin our vineyard. I have this against you. You've left something so vital, so important that I will do something. Something will happen about this lampstand of yours. And so he gives some prescribed remedy. He says this, remember, remember the heights from which you have fallen. Now I can't remember anything that I haven't experienced. Is that right? You have to have experienced something in order to remember it. Do you remember? Do you remember the elation, the joy, the acceptance, the thrill of when you came to Christ? Well, God does. He remembers. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth. Do you recognize a diminishing affection and eagerness for Christ? To have fallen speaks of instability, departure, distance, less appreciation and esteem than once was. The fall is due to something we have done, something we have neglected, and something that we have stopped doing altogether. We have forsaken and left. Do you remember the good old days? Do you write them off as naivety and immaturity? Oh, that's right. But that's when we were then. We're beyond that now, so much more mature. God doesn't think that. But God insists we remember with the intent to return to that place of first love. Remember. I'd rather not remember. 
No, you need to remember. And then he says this, the other ingredient in this remedy is repent. If I cannot remember something I have not experienced, then I certainly cannot repent of something I am not responsible for either. I will not repent unless I recognize my error and fault and see it as something repulsive to turn from. Our fallen nature despises and dismisses repentance. We will excuse and blame someone else before repenting. Now, Jesus is not pointing this out so he can hold something over on us to accuse and find fault in his beloved bride. He longs for our restoration and knows that coldness and distance is doing a job on us. Think of it. Repentance was how we became his bride in the first place. It was part of that first love. What did we find for our repentance? We found forgiveness, embrace, unfailing love, and no condemnation. Would it be any different now? Now that we are his bride? Isn't repentance a part of catching little foxes that ruin our vineyard? And then he talks about the, another thing is return, repeat, redo, do something, and do the things you did at first. Repentance requires a leaving of what damages our relationship. It also necessitates something we are to do that we used to do that brought bonding and, and was so special to us. Something that made our candle burn so warm and bright. So what are some of those things we did at first? One of the, I got five things, but there's probably more. Presence was important. Being with, proximity, together. Moses said, if you don't go with me, I'm not going anywhere. There was a sense of being with, this, his presence. Communication, listening, talking, sharing. Isn't that what he says? Let me hear your voice. Let me see your face. Attention, awareness, care, interest, sensitive, not grieving the Holy Spirit. There was affection. There was praise, closeness, kindness. There was this ascribing to the Lord, the glory to his name. Are you slow at that now? You talk to lovers and, and they can't. There's only one thing they can talk about. <laughs> it's the worth of this one that they love. Actions. Don't just tell me, show me. Courtesies that we used to be so eager to show. Let me get that door. Let me carry that thing. Let me do the dishes. <laughs> Whatever it is. There was these courtesies of kindness. One of the things we didn't do was to demand reciprocation for our acts of love. That just didn't cross our mind. Yet it may well have become the killer of our first love. I did this for you, God, so now I think I deserve something. Well, he goes on. He says, if you do not repent, <clears throat> the result, the uh, refusal, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Again, we have this repeated imperative of the necessity, the necessary first step. The first step, this is essential to recovering our first love. There is no alternative step to fixing it. It is either repent or else. And the or else is spelled out real clear here. 
This is not so much a threat as it is a certain conclusion if things continue as they are. The law of gravity will result in a painful and sudden stop. Does that removal of our lampstand seem a bit drastic, a measure for Christ to take? Perhaps drastic is only a consideration for the one who doesn't see this issue as serious as it is. We have settled for second place and second best and thought it was close enough to first place and first love. What did he mean when he says you shall love the Lord your God with part of your heart and what's ever left over? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. One of the things about candlesticks and candles is that they have a wick that must be attended to frequently or the light begins to smoke and fade. Visibility is impaired as well as the ability to breathe. If that condition persists, then a different candlestick is needed. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 stands out as a helpful reminder to us to know the difference between appearance and motive. That's the love chapter. If I have the gift of tongues and can speak and this and that, and even, even tongues of angels? I mean, they were, they were gifted. He even says that. The church in Ephesus touted <clears throat> pretty impressive accomplishments, sound theology, safeguards over the flock, but they were lacking in that gen- genuine motivation of love. And the Corinthian church also, they were eloquent and gifted, tongues of angels, knowledge and faith, move mountains, generous and sacrificial, surrender my body to the flames. Yet the absence of love invalidated everything. You're just an annoying gong. You're a clanging cymbal. And it amounts to nothing. It says, I gain nothing and I am nothing. Do you get the reason why Jesus said, this is, this is critical. Deeds and accomplishments may look great on the exterior, but God weighs the heart. And so does your spouse, by the way. So you bring her a bouquet of roses or expensive perfume, whatever it is, and just tell her you were doing your duty and see how that goes. You might just be wearing them. (laughs) She wants to know if your heart's in it. When Christ accomplished that unfathomable work of redemption on the cross, it was prefaced, it was saturated, it was motivated, and it was extended to us in love. For God so loved the world. Did he hate sin? He hates sin. But he loves the sinner. And he did something to bring us into that relationship. Unparalleled. You can't get much closer than a bride and a groom girl, a bridegroom. We need to be faithful in our practice, vigilant though in our motive. Otherwise, our programs and functions begin to lose their light and radiance and we start smoking and stinking. Jude 21 seems like such an unnecessary, no-brainer instruction, yet it's our lifeblood. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Does Jesus still remove lampstands today? Yes, he does. I was reading an article recently this week and it says for every church that opens its door in America, there are five to ten closing them. 
And by the way, the brethren denomination is no exception. Malachi 1.10 says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. Now, shutting the door, removing lampstands is not his first choice. That's why he's talking about it. But rather to rekindle our love. I love Keith Green's song. Oh, Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that burned, that burns with holy fire. Well, the next thing we look at in this passage is this. But you have this in your favor. That's kind of nice to know. He kind of sandwiches the hard thing right in the middle. He tells you got a good thing. tells you this is a really big one. But you do have this. I kind of like this. You have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, this is strange language. Strange that we have this crazy bat flapping all over the air of our time screeching incoherent threats about hate speech. If you hate anything, you're a bad person. And funny how they grab God is love. They forget to read Proverbs 6. Six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Yes, God is love. But read the rest of the Bible. That's what makes his love so great, is to see the awfulness of sin. One day when sin was as black as could be, that's when Jesus came forth. Think of this hate speech a minute. Jesus said something interesting. He said, anyone who would harm, lead astray, one of these little ones, the head on his lap, he says, it's better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the bottom of the sea. Well, that wasn't to give him a swim. That was to visit Davy Jones' locker. Now, is that hate speech or love speech? For those who would like to lie, who would like to deceive, who would like to groom, who would like to influence someone so that they can do their thing, That's hate speech. But if you love your kid and you see someone doing that, that's love speech. Those who think that tolerance of anything is okay are assuming that God is as accepting and indifferent as they are. There are many roads that emanate from wicked counsel. Blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful. At some point in that journey, see, there are many roads that emanate from wicked counsel. At some point in that journey, there will be a wake-up call, and what was once tolerated will no longer be tolerable. I think we need to remember that. 
But our love for Jesus should not be confined or solely defined by what we hate, but by what and whom we love. Don't just blow candles out. Let yours shine. So lastly, what did you hear the Spirit say to you today? Do you have an ear? Do you hear anything? Does the fire still burn bright? Is it going out? Recommendation, is the Spirit saying something? The response is, are you going to overcome that? It's not going to be easy. I don't suppose it was easy for Jesus to say that to his bride, was it? It's never easy when I have to talk or Cree has to talk to me. It's tough stuff. It's hard. But do you overcome it? Do you repent? You say, oh, what an idiot. I've just forgot. I've stopped doing it. Is he worth it? Is he worth it? We sang that. We had that video last week. It just hit me. He is worthy. He is worthy. Is he worthy? Your lover was worth it. You would do anything. You know, when Jesus talked to Peter, he asked him one question. Before he said to do anything, he said, Peter, do you love me? Based on that answer, he said, okay, now I want you to do something. Well, there's a reward. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The privilege was lost. The tree of life was lost, taken away. The paradise was lost, but the lover of our soul offers it again. Would you stand with me? Where are you at? We used to sing a song, at all cost, I will take up my cross and follow you wherever you go. This lover, this lover of our soul said, you followed me. I, I remember the devotion of your youth, you followed me. Part of the, the chorus, I think, says, if I ever fall, if ever I fall, disgrace your name. If ever I lose my way, at all costs, bring me back to serve you again. For I want you at all cost. Father in heaven, thank you for your great, great love that chose us and demonstrated it. And Lord, we just are so quick to fizzling, forgetting, wanting rather than giving. Lord, we don't want Titan Drive to be one of those candlesticks that gets snuffed out. We don't want our name to be among those that are set aside or taken away because we just are too stubborn to repent 
to do the things we once did. So I don't know how you're going to do it. But you said you know. You know. You know all about us. We can't hide. So please do that at our cost. Bring us back. In Jesus' name, amen.